Welcome to the DLA Piper Global Compliance and Investigations podcast. In this series, we will discuss market and legal insight and explore the latest trends and challenges facing businesses today and how they must evolve to meet them, both in the short and long term. In each episode, you get the latest views and insights from DLA Piper's leading lawyers. Hello, I'm Patrick Rappo, co-head of the Global Compliance and Investigations Group at DLA Piper. I'm delighted today to be presenting this episode in which we will be discussing the development of an effective whistleblower programme. We'll look at the latest developments we're seeing in the market, what they mean for you, and practical steps that you can take to protect your employees and your business generally. This is especially pertinent in recent times as it involves the ongoing impact implementation of the EU Whistleblower Protection Directive, which came into force on the 17th of December last year, 2021, which we will come on to later on. Today, I am joined by two outstanding colleagues of mine who are very experienced in this field. My colleagues, Laura Ford, a partner in our London office, and Katie Hosfeld, a co-head of Global Compliance, who is based in our Chicago office, although I believe she's in Seattle today, who will be sharing from their experience advising clients what it is to have an effective whistleblowing program. So thank you both for joining us. And Laura, if I can turn to you first, can you tell us what's contained within the whistleblowing directive? What's new? Thanks, Patrick. And hello, everybody. Yes, so the whistleblowing directive, it effectively provides a common minimum standard of protection for whistleblowers across Europe in relation to breaches of EU law. So thinking things in terms of procurement, financial services, data protection, and so on. It includes provisions in relation to a number of matters, such as creating safe internal channels of reporting. It includes rules in relation to record keeping, anonymity, non-retaliation, importantly, of course, escalation to external channels and details such as timeline to acknowledge reports and time periods in which follow up must be given. So you can see it's quite prescriptive in a range of areas. So it applies across the EU. Companies with more than 250 employees were required to implement by the 17th of December 2021. And there's a bit more of a grace period for smaller companies, so with between 50 and 250 workers who have until the 17th of December 2023. The deadline for implementation of the directive across the member states, as I say, was the 17th of December 21, but there are still a number of countries who haven't implemented it yet at the time of recording. And we are keeping a tracker on that, which I believe we'll provide details of to accompany this podcast. Laura, I think you've probably looked at some of the key issues already that businesses should be aware of in terms of the sort of minimum requirements, but also just looking at the company's internal reporting channels and what requirements you must meet there. Can you give us a a bit of a sort of overview as to those more uh, specific requirements? Sure. So uh, one of the main things to get clear on is whether or not a business is required to set up an internal reporting channel at all. So entities with 50 or more workers must establish channels and procedures for internal reporting and follow-up. As I say, that can be delayed for businesses with between 50 and 249 workers until the 17th of December 23. So a bit of time there. It applies to entities operating in the EU. So what that means precisely really is going to come down to what the implementing legislation in each member state says as to the definition of operating in the EU. 
But once you've established that you do in fact need to establish an internal reporting channel, then there are a range of requirements that the channel has to meet. So for example, it has to include provision for both oral and written reports. It has to be secure and confidential. Of course, that's precisely what a whistleblower will be looking for when they're seeking to make a report. It's very important that the identity of the reporting person is not disclosed to anyone beyond authorised staff members without explicit consent, unless there's a legal obligation to share the information in any circumstances. I mentioned earlier that there are strict timelines in some circumstances in the directive. So, for example, once a report is made, receipt must be acknowledged within seven days. Feedback must be given within a reasonable time frame of not more than three months. And entities must designate a specific person or department for following up reports that are made. Follow up is a, a term used in the directive and is defined and includes all actions taken to assess the accuracy of the allegations, to address the breach, including internal inquiry and investigation and so on. There is also provision that records must be kept for no longer than necessary. So you can see some quite strict requirements there. And Katie, just uh, flipping over to you now, can you give us an overview as to the sort of rules on using central group reporting? Say if you've got a company which is headquartered in the US but has got a bunch of subsidiaries uh, dotted across Europe, what's the position in relation to central group reporting channels as opposed to just using local channels? So thanks, Patrick, and good morning, everybody. So the European Commission has explicitly stated that a central global hotline by itself is insufficient to meet the director's requirements. However, companies operating in the EU can continue to maintain their central hotlines and programs as long as a local channel for each legal entity in each relevant member state is available. And so the European Commission noted that if a company has a corporate policy that encourages reporting centrally and a culture that instills that trust in the broader global function, workers may still choose to report centrally. And in fact, the commission has explicitly stated that if a worker was concerned about conduct within the local entity, they may also choose to take it to the group channel. But the worker, the key piece here is that the worker has to choose to decide whether to report at the group level or at the local entity level where they work. And so to be considered a local resource, the resource has to be available in that jurisdiction. So to have the local channel has to be available in this jurisdiction. That doesn't mean that the hotline itself has to be located in that jurisdiction, but the local reporter, the local contacts that they have within the jurisdiction have to be there. So using a regional hotline where multiple different reporters or a regional point of contact where multiple different jurisdictions can report in isn't going to be sufficient. Each legal entity has to have its own channel and a person designated to receive and follow up on their report in country. Now, the European Commission has advised that medium-sized companies, so companies with 50 to 259 workers, can share resources with other group legal entities, even if unrelated. And so that would be an exception to that. But each entity is responsible for complying with its obligations to maintain confidentiality, to give feedback, and to provide follow-up on the report. And while it's possible that some individual member states may choose to continue to allow reporting to be centralized at the group level in contradiction to the directive's requirements, and we've seen that in some of our local implementing legislation, it's possible that that approach may be later invalidated by the European Commission in the future. So 
practically speaking, businesses, you know, that don't have a local reporting channel in place, you know, with the local contacts within the local entity, even if they aren't required to do so by the member state legislation, may still run the risk that employees may choose to report externally. And Kitty, apart from the obvious cost implications that this has, where you've already got a central group channel and you've got to set up yet another one, but locally, what other requirements will these local reporting channels need to have? It still has to meet the requirements of the directive. So that means that you have to have somebody available for anonymous reports, whether in writing or anonymously. And that can be a line manager, it can be local HR, any of that should be sufficient as long as that individual is able to meet the other requirements. So the ability to provide feedback, be the point of contact for that person going forward and be able to make the deadlines that Laura mentioned earlier in terms of, of providing feedback within a timely fashion. And what's the position about having a local reporting channel? You know, is it possible to combine a local reporting channel with a global reporting program, such as one which you know sort of handles reports and investigations centrally? So you bring in the report and then it goes to the central function. Is that possible? Yeah, no, it is. And particularly for medium-sized businesses, those are the ones that are, again, the 50 to 249 workers. So those medium-sized businesses under the directive are allowed to share resources with other group companies or unrelated entities for the receipt of reports and follow-up investigations. But as I mentioned earlier, they're still obligated to meet the directive requirements of confidentiality and meeting the deadlines in terms of follow-up. So for a medium-sized company, that means that a parent company could handle the whistleblowing investigation on behalf of the subsidiary if the individual who made the report is informed and has the right to object and to request the investigation. And so there's the ability to bring it up to the group level. But again, that's only for medium-sized companies. So for large companies, the requirement, and those are the companies that are over 250, the requirement is still that all of it has to be handled locally unless there's a structural problem. So for instance, multiple jurisdictions are involved or the report involves the actual local team as well too. Those would be the only exceptions to being able to go outside of the local entity. But presumably the whistleblower can pick whether to go locally or go centrally. So that would be another exception. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And again, that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the directive is clear that you can encourage your employees to go to the central hotline. They just have to have the option to be able to go locally. No, that's super helpful. Uh, And Laura, uh, again, a subject close to many companies' hearts will be uh, what's the rules in relation to using outsourced third-party reporting channels? Because many companies have got very swish central programs run out of the US and or elsewhere, but hosted effectively by an external third party. Can that continue? It can. It can. So it's possible for any employer of any size to outsource the operation of the internal reporting channel to a third party, such as an external hotline provider, exactly as you say, Patrick, that's par for the course for most large businesses. However, the Commission has provided some follow-up information on this when questioned and has stated that it's only the receipt of reports that can be outsourced. So the entity covered by the directive itself has to retain responsibility for the investigation, follow-up, and feedback to be given by the business itself. 
Okay, that's interesting. And again, just in terms of using sort of third parties such as lawyers and so on, where they're effectively managed by the entity itself, presumably that doesn't preclude that practice of using lawyers to assist you with your investigations, does it? That's right. There's nothing in the directive that says that an entity cannot avail itself of outside support in meeting its own requirements under the directive. The entity, of course, has to retain responsibility for investigation, follow-up and feedback, but there's nothing to say that it can't then utilise lawyers in the context of a privileged investigation, for example, or forensic accountants, which are often needed in very large-scale investigations that might come about as a result of a whistleblowing report. But in terms of the sort of more truly outsourced, let's say, reporting channels or hotlines and so on, any particular restrictions there as to whether they must be within the local jurisdiction, just within the EU, or can it be anywhere in the world? Because some of these hotlines are based in different jurisdictions. What's the guidance or what's the directive state in relation to that? Uh, so it can be anywhere, but there'll be practical issues to consider, such as time zones, language, data privacy rules. And so for that local reporting requirement, it might be easier to have it in the jurisdiction or at least to make sure that there is provision for, for example, an individual seeking to report in Spain to be able to do it in Spanish. For example. Okay, and before we pop to you, Katie, in relation to the interaction with the US, sort of one last question for Laura. What's the directive's sort of missives in relation to anonymous reporting or confidential reporting? So effectively, it states that it's up to the member states to decide whether anonymous reports should be accepted. Any international or global policy will, of course, have to address this on a country by country basis or level up to provide that all anonymous reports are accepted. Even if local law doesn't require anonymous reports to be processed, entities might consider allowing this in any event from a best practice compliance perspective. What we're really aiming for here is to encourage whistleblowers to use these internal channels and they might be more likely to do that if they can do so anonymously. Okay, and uh, Katie, can you give us a helicopter view of where you think the land's going to lie in the future between the directive and the relevant US legislation? You've already mentioned SOX and there's obviously Dodd-Frank and other matters. What's your view as to the sort of crossover or the areas of distinction between the various contravailing pieces of legislation? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think you know, historically, the whistleblowing regime in the U.S., so SOX, Dodd-Frank, you know, the DOJ guidance, along with other legislation, has really been kind of viewed as the gold standard by which companies must comply. And I think a lot of particularly multinational companies have developed their programs in accordance with that guidance. And, you know, now we're seeing the, you know, numerous differences between what the U.S. regime prescribes versus the EU directive. And I think those are all going to need to be considered as companies consider how to update their programs to comply. So the biggest issue, I think, is that the directive is much more prescriptive. The U.S. regimes, while they require internal and external reporting mechanisms, they don't have the requirement of the local internal resources and the local channels that the directive calls for. It's certainly an option, but it's not a requirement. 
And as many companies' current whistleblower programs permit reporting in a local language to a central hotline, as we've discussed, these are going to have to be reevaluated in, in order to do business in Europe. So, uh, you know, unlike the directive, the U.S. whistleblowing regimes also expect companies to accept anonymous reports on an actual or suspected breach of the company's code of conduct or policies, as well as misconduct and violations of law more broadly, where the, the directive, as Laura just mentioned, it's silent on that. And it depends on the local countries that are going to be implementing it, whether uh, anonymous reports are required to be accepted or not. The U.S. regime requires it. So that may just if a company is either a U.S. company doing business in Europe or it's a multinational doing business in both jurisdictions, it may require them to accept a broader range of complaints than the EU directive would require them to do. And as we've talked, the directive provides these very prescriptive timeframes that companies have to acknowledge receipt and provide feedback within. So, you know, again, it's acknowledging receipt of a report within seven days and, you know, providing feedback within at least three months after receipt of the report. Again, while best practices under the U.S. regime dictate that companies should acknowledge receipt promptly and keep the reporter informed, there isn't these kind of prescriptive deadlines that have to be met. And I think the other biggest piece that often encourages whistleblowers to report at least to U.S. regulators is the financial incentives. Well, I was just about to ask you about that, because obviously there is a there's a huge financial incentive in the U.S. and there doesn't appear to be anything in the EU directive and certainly under UK law, which I'm involved with. I've been very keen on financial incentives, but they've simply been rejected by the FCA and uh, and other organizations here in the U.K. So there's no signs that it's going to happen. But do you think the direct is going to have any impact upon those financial payment schemes in the U.S.? I mean, right now, as you said, the directive is silent as to whether those financial incentives will be provided to whistleblowers in the EU. So certainly we might see it in local implementing legislation. But, you know, I think without that, if there's an option for a whistleblower to come forward and to bring claims to U.S. regulators, you know, provided certain conditions are met, that it may encourage whistleblowers to report in the U.S. rather than reporting through their local channels. So I think, again, it goes to the company culture and the tone and, you know, building confidence in your hotline to, you know, ensure that people are are willing to come forward rather than go to the regulators. Because again, we have that incentive here in the US and a much broader range of issues that can be reported on. Okay, that's super helpful. And Laura, just pivoting across to the UK perspective, obviously, there's the Public Interest Disclosures Act in in the UK. But how does that overlap with or supersede or compare with the whistleblowing directive? Thanks, Patrick. Yeah, so um, post-Brexit, of course, the UK is not obliged to implement the directive. It's chosen not to, effectively on the basis that it's considered that the UK already had in place sufficient protections in the form of the Public Interest Disclosure Act that you mentioned. There are some differences between the two regimes. So, for example, the directive covers a broader categories, a broader range of people, for example, self-employed and shareholders are also covered under the directive. And the UK law doesn't require internal reporting channels or policies, although of course it's best practice to have them in place to encourage internal reporting. Uh, But what we do expect is that we're likely to see alignment in any event where UK entities have European operations. It's much simpler to try and run one whistleblowing regime than it is to run a range of different ones across different jurisdictions. So we do expect that alignment in due course. 
Fantastic. Thanks, Laura. Well, uh, obviously, to conclude, it looks as if there's a lot of activity going on here and it's being implemented across a number of different jurisdictions. And ideally, obviously, the sooner that companies are able to put in the whistleblowing channels into their own frameworks, the greater the likelihood that they avoid whistleblowers going externally and uh, having massive windfalls that Katie's been mentioning that they could get in the US. So thank you both very much for your assistance with that. And thanks to you, uh, the listener for listening to us for more information on the EU whistleblowing directive including a a useful guide and implementation tracker which shows the status for each European country please head to the link in the notes to the show so we hope you enjoyed this episode and please do join us for the next episode which is on modern slavery and of course send us through any ideas that you have for any future programs thank you very much for today and we look forward to you joining us in the future Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the DLA Piper Global Compliance and Investigations podcast. Subscribe now through your usual podcast provider so you don't miss an episode. Thank you, and we look forward to you joining us in the future.